This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. About a quarter of Wisconsinites rely on private wells for their water, and a new study could help offer solutions to keep them safer, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The study sampled 840 private wells in southwest Wisconsin. Of that number, over one quarter of them tested positive for coliform bacteria and or had nitrate levels greater than state and federal health standards. The study also suggests solutions. It indicates that deeper wells could provide cleaner drinking water. It also calls for stricter manure spreading rules for CAFOs and other agricultural operations. Five liberal community and labor groups are calling on Milwaukee city leaders to reject the 2024 Republican National Convention that the mayor is pushing to host. The group says that the city should not support normalizing the far-right forces that are increasingly controlling the Republican Party, according to the journal Sentinel. Supporters of the convention say Milwaukee would benefit economically from the convention. They also say it would be an opportunity for the city to receive additional media coverage. Local leaders have said that if Milwaukee hosts the convention, they would want to make sure the city government benefits monetarily from the event. Nashville and Milwaukee are the two final cities being considered for the convention. A Wisconsin Union Council has filed charges with the National Labor Relations Board alleging that the American Red Cross is bargaining in bad faith. According to a press release from AFSCME Wisconsin, the Red Cross has canceled or rescheduled as many as 21 sessions with two bargaining committees. Contracts expired last September, and so far the only the initial exchange of proposals has occurred. Employees say they feel understaffed and underpaid, which comes at a time the U.S. is facing a blood shortage. The bargaining proposals prioritized competitive wages and higher staffing levels. A civil rights lawsuit filed by a black student at Monona Grove High School alleges that staff members carried out an unreasonable attempted search for drugs while he was on a school trip. The lawsuit alleges that this student and five other black classmates had their bags searched after two staff members noticed the scent of marijuana while stopped at a McDonald's. About 30 members of the Monona Grove Black Student Union were on the school trip south to visit historically black colleges and other cultural sites, according to the State Journal. The lawsuit seeks actual and compensatory damages, along with punitive damages. Madison building inspection officials say that the 12-story building downtown that houses Paisan's restaurant is in stable condition, contradicting its owner's claims that the structure is unsafe. 131 West Wilson Street has been closed and reopened twice since last September, reported the State Journal. Building owner Greg Rice submitted a letter of intent for a demolition request last week. Rice says the building is in danger of immediate collapse and the parking garage can no longer support the building. But city officials refute this claim. They say that according to multiple engineering reports, the building is not in immediate danger. Inspections of the building are conducted twice weekly. Downtown Alder Mike Verveer called Rice's letter a hyperbolic effort to push out tenants. The Center for Black Excellence and Culture has received a $2.5 million donation from the Ascendium Education Group. The center raised more than half its needed capital in less than a year for a planned cultural space on Madison's south side. According to the Cap Times, the center plans to host exhibits about black history, community spaces for families, and opportunities for black business development. The center has a goal to raise $36 million to fund the construction of the space, which it hopes to start in 2023. And now on to today's top stories. Last night, members of Madison's teachers' unions held a rally outside the Madison Metropolitan School District Administration Building, pushing for a better raise for educators and staff in the district. WORT producer Heron Splinter has more. Contract season for teachers means renewed focus in how the school district compensates teachers and hourly workers. This year, costs have increased dramatically for teachers due to inflation and other forces. Now, the Madison Teachers Union, MTI, is asking for better wages. The union is asking for a 4.7% raise for educators and $5 an hour more for supporting employees, like secretaries and security. That's more than has been proposed by the school board, which has published a draft budget with a 2% raise for all staff, with further increases for longevity. Michael Jones is president of MTI, the teachers' union. You know, in terms of looking at their base pay and comparing it versus other districts and realizing we're really far behind, it's about $15.96. 
to start here in the district in MMSD, but that's $3 less than Sun Prairie. That's uh, about $2 less than Verona. So, and we were seeing a lot of people leave. You know, this has been a year where a lot of employees have left, uh, not just the district, but just education in general. Ali Muldrow is the president of the Madison School Board. She says the district is in some hard times. You know, there isn't just $7 million sitting around in recurring revenue. Um, and I think the, the real problem that we're confronting as a district is what it means to have our state legislature invest absolutely nothing in, in our young people through the biennial budget. Muldrow says a few things would need to change for the district to be able to pay the teachers what they are asking for. I think prioritizing compensating teachers means really looking line by line at the budget um, and, you know, keeping cuts as far away from the classroom and as far away from schools as possible. Um, And I think that means making cuts administratively, and I think that means really looking at where there are inefficiencies in our budget. And I think that's something we've engaged in over and over again. Um, But I think last night reminded us to to go back and and keep doing that work. Jones, MTI president, says he understands the district's position, especially without the state support necessary to supplement schools. But he emphasizes the importance of employee retention in staying competitive with salaries. If you're going to make decisions now, that's going to impact whether or not we're actually going to be able to staff schools. Because if enough people leave, you can't hire enough people to make up for the loss. That's a cost in and of itself. The budget is slated to be finalized this fall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Rainy conditions are expected in Madison overnight into tomorrow, but it's looking to lighten up into the weekend. With more on what to expect, here is WRT's weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Jacket weather is back as a mid-level trough is keeping the atmospheric pressure low here in Madison and keeping temperatures down with it. Temperatures this week fluctuated in the 60s and are currently sitting at right around 60 degrees with 10-mile-per-hour winds coming from the east. Showers and thunderstorms are possible tonight and will increase into tomorrow as a warm front will push northward and moisture will increase as the low approaches. This is well needed as Madison hasn't seen much accumulated rain. For those with allergies, it may be time to break out the flonase. Tree pollen counts today reached the very high category and grass pollen reached the moderate category. These categories simply indicate how likely a person's risk of experiencing allergy symptoms are. If you are someone who experiences allergies, Make sure to keep windows in your home and car closed, wipe off pets that come inside from the backyard, change clothes and shower when arriving from a day out, and wash your hands before touching your face. Despite the cloudy conditions, the UV index still reached 7 here in Madison today, so don't forget to protect your skin from those rays. As we are getting closer to summer, the days are getting longer, making it easier for some to get up and start their day. The sun is now rising at right around 5.25 a.m. and not setting until 8.23 p.m. As rain moves in tomorrow, humidity percentages will be high as well. With the percentages overnight into tomorrow reaching the 80s, we will be seeing some air you can wear, but your hair can't wear. Sticky conditions are expected with tomorrow's showers. Chances for precipitation linger into Thursday as the trough moves through. A high-pressure system is moving in through Friday, so we are expected to see warmer weather again coming into the weekend, just in time for the Dane County Farmer's Market. With your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. If you are on Madison's east side today, you may have seen a unique protest. It was a stop by the Bloodstained Men, an anti-circumcision group with roots in the city. The group stopped in town today as part of its tour across the Midwest. WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo ventured out to learn their story. All white shirts and pants with a big red stain on the crotch around the zipper. That's the uniform protesters wore today on Madison's east side on the intersection of East Washington and Highway 51. 
The protesters are the Bloodstained Men, a nonprofit organization and activist group devoted to ending circumcision. The uniforms, the founder says, is one of the most powerful protest symbols in human history. Because we are wearing a stain on our pants right over the injury that it represents underneath our pants. It's brilliant. That's Brother K. He led today's rally in Madison, part of a 20-day protest tour throughout the Midwest. And yes, Brother K is his legal name. He had it changed in 1986 when he realized that he didn't want to be the name given to him at the time he was circumcised. A decade ago, he founded Bloodstained Men, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending the practice of circumcision. David Atkinson is the CEO. My sign here in my right hand says, Stop Cutting Baby Penis. And on the other side, it says, Intact Genitals Are a Human Right. Bloodstained men are leading the charge for intactivists, a term that merges intact and activism in the fight to end circumcision. Intactivists see circumcision as cruel and worthless. They claim that foreskin is important for male sexual satisfaction and health, and they counter claims that circumcision promotes cleanliness and reduces the chances of disease. You might wonder, among all other fights right now over bodily autonomy, why one would take up this specific issue. Brother K says he's aware that there are other issues, but he's been at this a long time and took his inspiration from the civil rights movement decades ago. The civil rights movement, which I grew up during the civil rights era, uh, the movement for uh, gay rights, uh, the draft, uh, women's rights, all, all, the, all the civil rights movements uh, that happened in the 50s and 60s um, set the example for me. But it's certainly not without skepticism. Brother Kay says he and others have encountered pushback. He says he's had Bibles thrown at him during rallies. Today, a car passenger driving past the protest yelled expletives that I can't air on the radio. But Brother K says it's an issue that intersects with human rights issues and he'll keep protesting. I don't think injuring men when they are newborns is beneficial for society. I think that I would like to see I would like to see what America would be like without a nation of circumcised men. What do you think it would be like? I think it would be a more peaceful society. I don't think we would see the kinds of bizarre, random violence that we see. I mean, people of compassion and humanity would agree, let's stop circumcising boys and see if it has a beneficial effect on society. The answer will be obvious in a hundred years. They say that wisdom is men planting trees in whose shade they will never sit. And we are planting trees for the future. We are, I'm going to break up talking about this. Because it's a future, it's a future we, we will not see, but I believe in it. We believe in it. We, I believe in that future. The bloodstained men will protest in Janesville and Rockford tomorrow. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanzo. Yesterday, ballots were counted in a landmark vote for a new union at a prominent local software company. A group of quality assurance testers at Middleton-based Raven Software, a subsidiary of Activision Blizzard, made history by winning a union vote, a first for the video game industry. This vote made national headlines, but as always, local reporters were there first. WORT producer Heron Splinter spoke with a reporter at the Cap Times who has been following the story for months. Yesterday, ballots were counted in an election to unionize Raven Software, a game studio owned by Activision and maker of games like Call of Duty. Raven is based right here in Madison, and yesterday's vote means workers there will be represented by a new union called the Game Workers Alliance. I'm speaking today with Natalie Yar, the business and local economy reporter for the Capital Times. She's been following this story closely. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So earlier this month, quality assurance testers at Activision Blizzard voted in a union election. And yesterday, those ballots were counted at the Milwaukee office of the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. You watched the ballots count. Tell us about it. Yeah, uh, it was my first time watching uh, one of these, uh, and I didn't quite know what to expect. But yes, they were not allowing anyone to 
attend in person. And so it was on Zoom. And um, essentially, there was a part where folks, some specific allotted folks were able to go into a different Zoom room and confer about something. But then they later showed us all of the uh, ballots individually. And we learned uh, that two ballots had been challenged, but we saw the rest of the ballots that were opened and they were uh, 19 yeses and 13 noes. There's quite a process for challenging ballots. Is this the final vote? Yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about the details of the process, but I do know that in this case, because the number of challenged ballots was two and thus much smaller than the margin, uh, that they are not going to be opening those uh, ballots because they won't change the outcome of the count. It's one of the first or the first union at a major video game company, and it comes after quality assurance testers have spoken out about a toxic workplace. Could you tell us about the history leading to this point? What have you heard from the Raven workers? First of all, just a little bit of backstory on uh, these kinds of workers. Quality assurance testers, uh, who are the specific group of workers uh, that are included in this union at Raven, are the workers who uh, check video games, play them, uh, and look for bugs to ensure that the the games going out from uh, a studio like Raven are of the highest quality. And so these workers are at Raven, uh, among the lowest paid employees. They had a starting wage of $15 an hour um, until uh, several months ago, and then it was bumped up to $17 an hour. Uh, many of them were making around $18.50 an hour, um, and uh, they're paid hourly as opposed to salaried. And up until rather recently, uh, they were generally contract employees. They were uh, hired for temporary uh, contracts and then often uh, terminated uh, at the end of a busy season. So they would uh, work lots of overtime, often 12 to 14 hours or more uh, in an, a day uh, to get a game ready to ship out, say, at the holiday season. Uh, and they'd be in this crunch time. They'd work super hard and they described kind of how grueling that was and even physically challenging uh, to be in those rooms playing those games for so long. And then they would often lose their jobs at the um, you know, at the end of one of those periods. And this is, I think, uh, from what I understand, just a common phenomenon in the industry, but one that people who care about uh, workers uh, think should change. This all comes on the tails of some... Uh, but the thing that really uh, triggered uh, workers at Raven to uh, take action... Uh, earlier this year uh, or end of last year was that uh, last December, a dozen workers from Raven, uh, along with some colleagues at other Activision studios, were laid off. Uh, This was part of a move by Activision to generally move its quality assurance testers to being full-time permanent employees uh, instead of temporary contract workers, but uh, workers uh, at Raven Software uh, went on strike to call for Uh, their uh, colleagues in uh, quality assurance to be um, reinstated in full-time roles. Uh, And uh, within, um, let's see, that was in December. Um, By the end of January, uh, those workers had announced that they'd formed uh, the Game Workers Alliance, uh, and they asked for voluntary recognition from uh, Activision uh, for their union. Uh, And when Activision didn't give that, they filed a petition with the uh, National Labor Relations Board for their union. And that's kind of what brought us to this point. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the history of Activision. Uh, And also, you wrote a bit in the article about union busting tactics. Workers say that management pressured them to vote against forming a union. Uh, Workers have um, waged at least two prior work stoppages prior to uh, that strike I mentioned in December. Um, regarding, uh, you know, concerns that the company uh, has allowed a toxic workplace uh, to fester, that there's been uh, harassment and discrimination uh, for years. And the the company was sued by the state of California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing for its labor practices. So that's all still ongoing and certainly the matter of whole other stories. Regarding the uh, concerns about the company uh, allegedly union busting, uh, yes, employees say that uh, they were you know, called into meetings, I think many of these being virtual meetings, um, where management uh, relayed kind of all of the problems that could come with a union. Um, and uh, on Twitter threads, 
um, online employees said, you know, why the the management had focused on the bad that a union could do, but did not highlight the good a union could do. I think this is a common story with many uh, employers. Uh, and so um, I uh, haven't heard a lot of that firsthand, but uh, from what I understand from other uh, reporting, there has just been kind of a clear message from management that they did not want workers to vote for the union. And uh, in its statements to uh, the press, the company has has made clear that um, it thinks that it's better off without um, a union. Interestingly, um, the company has not yet stated um you know, what next steps it plans to take. And it didn't respond directly to my question on that. Obviously, the union could um, just move forward and not contest um, the process, in which case the union will be certified on May 31st. And that'll be the point at which um, Activision is, you know, obligated to begin bargaining in good faith uh, with uh, the union uh, or the union can, um essentially attempt to appeal, uh, can can put in some other um, sort of attempt uh, to slow the process, and it's not yet clear which of those Activision plans to do. Uh, interestingly, Activision is in the process of being acquired by Microsoft for um, almost $69 billion, and um, Microsoft has said that it does not plan to stand in the way of employee efforts if employees were to unionize. Is there anything else mm-hmm. that you'd like us to know? No, I think it'll just be interesting to be watching um, what happens next. As I said, it's not yet clear um, how Activision will be will respond. So I will be watching um, for that and reporting uh, on that. And then, of course, uh, getting a union is only the first step for uh, these workers. Of course, they have worked very hard to achieve their union, and also um, they will need to do their whole contract negotiation process for the first time. And uh, it's not yet clear, you know, what that will look like or um, how easy it will be to negotiate with the, the management of Raven and Activision. So I'll be watching all those things. I've been speaking with Natalie Yar, a reporter at the Capital Times. Her article titled Union Victory at Raven Software Makes Video Game History can be found at captimes.com. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WRT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. WRT shares the experiences of an Afghan evacuee now living in Milwaukee. Wildlife Weekly helps care for some cute kits. And Radio Astronomy looks closely into the gravitational abyss at the heart of the Milky Way. And I'll take a quick break, checking on some world headlines back in a flash. BBC News. A gunman has shot dead a teacher and 14 pupils at a primary school in the U.S. state of Texas. The state governor, Greg Abbott, said the attacker had used a handgun and possibly a rifle. 18-year-old Salvador Ramos is dead and is believed to have been killed by law enforcement officers. Mr Abbott said there were reports the gunman had shot and killed his grandmother before going to the Rob Elementary School in the city of Uvalde. Responding to the news from Texas, the US Vice President Kamala Harris said Americans' hearts kept getting broken and that they must have the courage as a nation to ensure that nothing like it ever happened again. President Biden is expected to make a statement in the coming hour. 
A state of emergency has come into force in Hungary. Prime Minister Viktor Orban said the government needed emergency powers to deal with the fallout from the conflict in neighbouring Ukraine. Rights groups have criticised the move. The US State Department says it is appalled by the latest report on human rights violations by the Chinese government against the Uyghurs. It called it further evidence that a genocide was continuing. The commodities giant Glencore has agreed to plead guilty to corruption charges in the US and Britain. It will pay more than a billion dollars to end a five-year investigation into corporate malpractice. It was accused of directing traders to fix the oil market. South Korea's military says North Korea has fired three ballistic missiles in the space of an hour. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and Seoul said the missiles had been launched in an easterly direction from the Sunan area of the North Korean capital, Pyongyang. Japanese officials said two of the missiles had fallen into the Sea of Japan. BBC News. August 26th of 2021 was a day of mayhem and bloodshed inside the gates of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul. That's where U.S. and allied forces were working to evacuate people from Afghanistan. Just outside the airport gates, as the guns blasted and the bombs exploded, a group of Afghan women circled the scene in buses, waiting for the right time to make an attempt to enter and, against all odds, board an airplane to Bangladesh. The group was led by a woman named Panahi, an evacuee who asks only to refer by one of her names. She's now living in Milwaukee after spending time at Fort McCoy. She joined WRT's Friday 8 o'clock buzz host Andy Moore on the phone last week. They started off talking about her experience finding a way out of Afghanistan. I, I want to ask you to take us to that day at the airport, but before you do, what were you doing prior to your escape from Kabul in regards to school and work? I was working uh, as an operation manager in an electronic payment company. Uh, and you, how did you meet your what became your fellow travelers in school? And I, and I think a school in Kabul arranged for the flights out. How did, how did the group come together? So the travelers, they were all the students who were the alumni and the current students of Asian University for Women, which is in Bangladesh. And I'm one of their alumni. So, like, before uh, all these things happened, there were rumors a lot about Taliban regime that they're going to uh, start ruling Afghanistan. And that's why um, our founder, the founder of the university, Dr. Kamal Ahmad, he decided to take all these Afghan students out of Afghanistan so that to keep us in a safe place uh, from the regime of uh, Taliban. Some, maybe many Americans, have a general understanding of the challenges that women face in all in all manner um, under Taliban rule, um, but there is a very um, specific challenge that comes with a woman attempting to go to school there. Talk about that um, uh, in the conditions that you left and, and how they persist. Uh, so our group was uh, the group of students who were currently studying or they were graduated and we all wanted to pursue our education and pursuing education is uh, the only solution for for us like for Afghan women to fight against inequality gender inequality in Afghanistan so once the founder of the university got to know that uh, it's not uh, a good time that all their students uh, stay in Afghanistan after getting education and finishing their gra- undergraduate program. And that was not a good idea to stay in Afghanistan because we knew that we're going to end up like what the girls are ending up today in Afghanistan, that they cannot go to school, they cannot go to universities. You you led several attempts, actually, to get through into the airport before you were successful in getting in and getting out. Um, tell us about the, I don't want to call them false starts, but those those first attempts, um, all of which were very, very, it must have been very, very intense. Yeah, so for us, it, uh, it took almost uh, a week. We tried several times to go to the airport, but it was very busy and crowded because 
everyone was there just like from every uh, cities they all came there close to the airport just to try to go inside the airport which was not possible for everyone and like we tried for four or five times before our last attempt that we made it and it was i remember there was a night that the bomb exploded inside us but we were still insisting to go inside the airport and finally after four or five attempts we we successfully could go inside the airport for the whole uh, time we were just waiting in the buses and in the last night though we were under the threat of Taliban but still uh we were just trying to make sure no one come closer to our buses because uh, anytime a bomb could explode because we knew that Taliban is not letting us go very easily so it was kind of a difficult time how many were in your group we were around 148 so the there were busloads of travelers yeah. um, on on this mission um, again for a want of yeah. a better word and yeah and most of those times that you were turned back it was due to crowds and fighting and and that type of thing yes I'm talking with Panahi at Afghan um, uh, currently living in Milwaukee um, uh, she left Kabul last summer her efforts helped a group of Afghan women students escape the country as you're hearing uh, they finally got to Fort McCoy and eventually um, ha- resumed schooling at UW-Milwaukee. You took us right to the gate there on, on the attempt that uh, was successful. Uh, Panahi, will you, will you tell us a little bit more about the story of getting through those gates, what you saw, what your group experienced, and, and what it felt like to get on that plane to Bangladesh? Uh, so it was a very difficult time. Uh, it, we were just waiting outside the airport which was very crowded and everyone was trying to go inside and of course everyone wanted to just take themselves first into the airport that was kind of difficult and also since we were a group of young girls and uh, students who were just alone without their parents it was kind of difficult uh, because the Taliban was not letting uh, a group of uh, single woman to travel just like that. It was making our attempts uh, difficult. At least the other people, they were with their families. And, but we were mm-hmm. not. We were just uh, all the students. And then you eventually landed at Fort McCoy, correct? Yes. What were you feeling when you landed in the U.S.? Well, from the very beginning, we didn't know where are we going. After landing in uh, U.S. It was, I think, uh, Virginia hmm. or D.C. Uh, we were all surprised and like, oh, are we in U.S.? <laughs> so oh my. no one knew that. Yeah, that we are we going. So like, oh my. everyone was just trying to go somewhere, but we didn't know where we're going. I can't imagine the disorientation, not to mention the the long hours and and lack of sleep. There was a lot of protection of privacy. Um, during people's uh, time at Fort McCoy, uh, there there were very few opportunities for the press to gain access or the public uh, to gain access to what the experience at Fort McCoy was like for people in your situation. What was your experience at Fort McCoy like? Uh, in Fort McCoy, like, since we were uh, a big group of students uh, who could speak English, uh, who could understand English, so at the beginning, everyone was just very, so uh, we, we were all scared when we all had a very difficult time. And when we were in Fort Mackay and when we were seeing other people that they were with their families, it was kind of heartbreaking. And then we decided that now we are family member, like 148 girls, we are the sister of each other. So let's make our own family and each of us contributed to the the oppression of the fort my like some of the girls they they were teaching the kids 
uh, they were teaching English, mm-hmm. and I was volunteering uh, in a legal counseling counsel clinic, and also in a warehouse, like interpreting and with translation and all. Bring us up to date, if you would please, um, with uh, the uh, journey to, to Milwaukee and the resumption of, of school uh, in this past couple of semesters, and how that's been going for your cohort, and um, and then tell us about the the uh, the college uh, tuition help. Uh, so currently, uh, I myself am I'm, I'm working, but the eight of these students uh, they are studying in UWM in their intensive English program. Uh, but the university uh, currently is not able to offer a scholarship for these students. But the expert charge and the intensive English program at UWM, they formed an uh, Afghan Student Partnership of Milwaukee organization to raise funds for the students uh, for their tuition. And this tuition would go directly to the scholarship fund. And also, the students are looking for summer job and internship, like to come lazy and have a source of income too. But now, thank you so much for sharing your story, and thank you for appearing on the eight o'clock buzz. Good luck with the student tuition effort. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us all about adorable new fox kits at the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehabilitation Center and how they're suffering from an unexpected illness. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to be talking about our excellently adorable fox kits that are here in care at the Wildlife Center. I'm not sure if you've heard about these fox kits from our most recent Help Me Heal post that went out about avian influenza, but we actually have three little fox kits that are here in care and in rehabilitation because we've had so many of them admitted here in the last two months. Um, Most of the kits that have come into the Wildlife Center have been sick in some way or orphaned from their parents, and a number of them actually have tested positive for avian influenza, which is a big deal right now. It's a virus that is naturally found in a lot of our waterfowl, our geese, and have been affecting our water birds, shorebirds, and raptor species especially. Uh, But we didn't really know it was affecting other species like mammals until we got some positives back uh, when we had an influx of fox kits admitted with neurological symptoms. And those that were abnormal definitely were very abnormal. They were seizuring or they were unable to walk well, they were stumbling, Um, and it was really sad to see how much decline there was um, knowing that we weren't sure exactly what was was affecting them until we were able to get a swab um, and some testing done through the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Lab uh, to be able to tell us that, yeah, it was in fact avian influenza. And it was really happening mostly from fox kits between the ages of like five to eight weeks old, which is often when we get fox kits uh, to rehabilitation centers because they are generally uh, straying away from their parents at that age. Um, And so sometimes they get lost, but in this case, they probably were feeding on a carcass maybe of a dead goose or a dead duck that might've had avian influenza for some reason, uh, which has been an outbreak that has been going through the US since January and has been in Wisconsin since about mid-March. So anyways, we have two fox kids that did test positive for avian influenza, but have since uh, been cleared through the quarantine period. So they are no longer shedding the virus and we were able to give really great supportive care, medications, everything that they needed to be able to get through the avian influenza virus and are absolutely thriving outside in their cage. Um, the funny thing is that one of them came in and was, you know, not very symptomatic at all and did fine and it moved outside very quickly. Uh, The second one was really lethargic and was having trouble eating and standing, and it took a while for that little one, uh, it's the female, uh, to really get better enough that we felt comfortable it could move outside. And it did have to clear a series of tests to say it was negative before it could join the other fox. 
Now, the other fox, the first one, was a little male, and he, he's so cute. They're about the same size, about the same age, and, you know, he'd been kind of alone for a while, and he hides underneath all the brush and in the logs, and he's just sitting there just kind of, you know, you might enter the cage, but he he's not doesn't want anything to do with people, which is great, but is so shy and just, like, doesn't like to be caught, so he runs around the cage, um, and... It was the first moment that the female fox went in to join him that uh, one of our staff members was recounting, just kind of watching the two of them. And, you know, at first they were kind of dancing around each other, just kind of circling in the cage. And then supposedly they went um, nose to nose just to kind of say hello to each other because they'd never met before. Uh, they'd been in fully separate quarantine rooms the whole time. And... Uh, I guess the female fox did a little pounce and put both of the front feet on the shoulders of the the young male and kind of bopped him. And so he went pop and then ran off. And so since then, they've been playing. We've been getting some really great video footage of them playing at night because we have a GoPro that we put outside. Um, it's just it's so great to see them play. And I thought it would be fun to share a little bit of an excerpt about foxes um, from a book that is very old now. It's actually back from 1979, but I picked it up off of our bookshelf in the Wildlife Center thinking, you know, this would be kind of cool to see what did what did people think about fox rehabilitation back in the 70s. Um, and this is from a book called The Complete Care of Orphaned or Abandoned Baby Mammals by Spalding in 1979. And I'm going to read this excerpt really quick, but it says, uh, this is for fox, wolf, and coyote. Um, but all three of these animals are basically wild dogs, and the habits and care of the pups are basically the same as for dogs. All three nest in a den of some sort in which uh, to whelp their pups, with the fox generally digging a burrow deep into a hillside. Not too many pups, and from here on, we'll mean the young of the fox or the wolf or coyote when we say the word pup, and uh, not many of them are seen at a young age. This is because their parents keep them well concealed in places seldom frequented by humans. Therefore, few people have the opportunity to raise the pups as if they should be orphaned or injured. And too many people dislike and even hate the wild canines due to their occasional preying on domestic animals. So frequently, if pups are not discovered, the finder's reaction is to destroy them as enemies, but not as if to raise them in rehabilitation. The orphan pup means life in the wilderness can be dangerous and harsh. On occasion, a mother is killed while hunting to support her litter, and if the pups are five or six weeks old, near their weaning age, the father may be able to save them as he often hunts for the family as well, bringing the kill home to the pups. They can survive without their mother's milk, although they would grow faster with it, but when the pups are orphaned and at a very young age, from birth to about five weeks old, their chances of survival without human help are extremely slim. Sometimes a person walking in the woods or fields comes across a very young pup, obviously in need of help. We have found such pups, often one or two deceased in the den, and others nearby the den entrance. And these orphan pups are very gaunt looking and usually quite weak. Sometimes a person finds a deceased female with enlarged uh, breasts showing signs of having nursed a litter of pups. This often happens on a road or a highway where the mother has been struck by a car. Sometimes, if caring humans and the orphan pups are lucky, they can search likely sites in the nearby vicinity and locate the den. But this is very hard to do, especially if you're not familiar with the habits of wild canines. Young pups cannot live for more than 48 to 56 hours without nursing. But... Do not, however, bring home just any young pup or a den of pups that you find. Many times a pup or a litter is stolen from the den of a mother that's out hunting and people might think of them as a pet. This is not a good idea. And that's an italicy. This is not a good idea. First of all, it takes a lot of work to raise a young pup to adolescence. And in the second place, wild canines do not make good pets. Uh, they will not turn on you, or but they will keep their wild instincts intact, fighting to keep food, stealing from the trash bag, jumping on the table for food, or marking their territory with urine or feces and other unpet-like behaviors. Uh, nothing, no, punishment does not do anything to frighten the pup or make it angry, and few wild canines can be totally housebroken. So this chapter talks about how uh, the orphan pup is obviously um, a wild animal, why it's appropriate to keep them in the wild, and how to rehabilitate them so they can get back out to the world effectively. I just thought it was a really cool excerpt to introduce the orphaned pup situation, because 
honestly, back in the 70s, those are all the same reasons that we see Fox today. Um, and although viruses like the avian influenza virus is causing a bigger problem right now for us to see more foxes than we normally would in a given year, we get plenty of orphan fox calls when the parent is deceased by the side of the road. It's a nursing female. Uh, you know, the fox itself is hit by a car or they are accidentally orphaned and starving for some reason and you don't know where the parents have been. So it looks to me from this passage that we've we had a good start from a great writer talking about the wild canines and these canines are wonderful and you're right they're not really near humans or at least they make themselves not visible to humans especially in the breeding season and I just think we're very lucky to have a couple of them this year that are just so fun to be able to watch um, again not in person because we we don't want them to get used to us we get to see them through the use of uh, technology which is pretty amazing and I wonder back in 1979 did they have that type of ability to you know see that oh, what did they have to use you know video cameras and other things where you don't have smartphones and you don't have gopros or live cameras um it's pretty neat to be able to see what they actually do in rehabilitation without actually being there in person so we have these kits they are surviving they're thriving they've made it through we're very happy to have them and feel lucky to rehabilitate red fox in our area and other canid species uh, if you ever find an injured animal a sick one an orphaned fox for example give us a call at 608-287-3235 and thanks for listening on wort this has been wildlife weekly A group of telescopes have captured images of gases surrounding the black hole in the center of our galaxy. In this Radio Astronomy Read broadcast from last week, crew members Dan Rabarczyk and Anthony Taylor gaze into a supermassive black hole. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Dan Rabarczyk. And I'm Anthony Taylor. Today, we're discussing the release of the first ever image the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star. That's right. Last week, the Event Horizon Telescope, a global network of radio telescopes, announced that after years of observations built on decades of research, they have finally made an image of Sagittarius A star. This is only the second ever direct image taken of a black hole. And in reality, they didn't actually image the black hole itself. That would be impossible. A black hole is an object with such an immensely strong gravitational pull that nothing, not a rocket ship, not an atom, not even light, can escape its pull. What we actually saw was the hot, glowing gas surrounding the black hole in a ring-like structure. This gas feels the effects of the black hole's gravitational field and gets superheated, but it's far enough away that it doesn't get pulled into the black hole. It lies just outside of what we call the event horizon, the point of no return around a black hole. That's what gives the Event Horizon Telescope its unique name. In the image, at the center of this superheated ring of gas, we see a dark region. This dark central region, sometimes called the shadow, is the telltale signature of a black hole. It marks the region where light and matter cannot escape the black hole's gravitational pull. It's a feature that was first predicted by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. And now, more than 100 years after Einstein published this brilliant theory, astronomers and physicists are yet again proving it correct. And that's just one of the many exciting implications of this work that scientists are excited about. Besides helping us understand the fundamental physics required to form black holes like Sagittarius A star, which reside at the centers of almost all large galaxies, this discovery is teaching us a lot about our own Milky Way galaxy. The first clue that there was something exotic happening in the center of our galaxy came in 1933, when the astronomer Carl Jansky detected radio waves coming from the constellation Sagittarius, near the center of the Milky Way. Later observations would show that this emission was coming from a hot, compact region that they named Sagittarius A-star. An international team, headquartered in Germany, later used radio and infrared telescopes to study the orbits of stars around Sagittarius A star. What they found was that these stars were orbiting Sagittarius A star with incredible speeds. Using these orbits, they estimated the mass of Sagittarius A star, which 
was then known to not be an actual star or even a clustering of many stars, and they estimated it to be about 4 million times more massive than the Sun. This indicated that it was indeed a supermassive black hole. But despite being supermassive, Sagittarius A star still takes up only a tiny fraction of the sky, just a few hundred millionths of a degree. And on top of that, astronomers had to look through all of the stars, gas, and dust that lies between us and Sagittarius A star, a hundred thousand trillion miles away. That's why it took such complex observations and computer algorithms to make this image. That's right. It took telescopes around the world, all acting in unison, like a telescope as big as the entire Earth, to do it. And then they used some of the most sophisticated imaging techniques ever developed to isolate just the region around Sagittarius A star from everything else. It's an incredible scientific achievement made possible by hundreds of people from across the globe. And there's still a lot of work to be done to understand this incredible object at the center of our very own galaxy. Exciting stuff coming up. That's all for Radio Astronomy this week. Thanks for listening. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Leahy. Your reporter tonight was Cameron Costanzo. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and a special thank you to Andy Moore of the Friday 8 o'clock buzz. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Aaron Splinter produced this newscast. And Jolly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.